Welcome to the Attic Monologues, Episode 7, Undreamed Shores. Right. Hello, future Nix. Been a while. Um, the date is October 27th. Things are actually going pretty well, so I haven't really needed to talk like this. Or I forgot. I've never really been one for habits. But yeah, things are good. Sam's got me going to his library study group, and things are really kicking off the 12th night, so I'm leaving the house more often, beginning to remember what it was like to be a fully functioning extrovert, to have actual friends. I mean, obviously, Bella and Lola and Seth are my actual friends, but they're like, I don't know, it's different with them. Easier. Quieter. More. Anyway, what else is new? Oh, I got that essay in. I'm holding out for a 2-1, but we'll see. I'm like actually ahead of my deadlines at the moment. What with the library, and I've started going to the Caramel and Clove regularly to study and to vibe, even when, when Bella isn't up for it. I'm starting to worry. I, I mean, maybe it's nothing, but she, I don't know. She's not doing great, I think. I don't want to, like, pry, but maybe I should... Wait, hang on. Hey, Bells, you okay? Mm, yep, just, you know me, clumsy to a fault. It sounded like you were breaking the floorboards in. Close enough. Can I help with anything? No, no, nothing got broken. It's just really frustrating when things are... Uh, you know, it's the regularly scheduled midterm breakdown. But I'm okay. Are you okay? Like, okay, okay. I never really got the chance to ask before... But when you left, I was worried. I was worried. You took off so suddenly, and then I didn't hear from you, and I I thought I might have done something. Or it might have gotten bad, like it used to be. But now you're back, and I know you've been back for a while, and you look okay, but there's something... And you don't have to tell me anything if you don't want to, but I just need to know. Are you okay? I'm okay. <laughs> You're such a bad liar. I'm really not. Can you at least promise me it won't get like before? You won't let it get like before? I don't know what you mean. Promise me you'll let me help. Let me in. I want... I want to help. Nix. Please. I promise. Good. My uncle came to town. He hasn't been home in almost 15 years. I was five when he left and my mum was so angry. 
I was so young, but I remember that. I've never seen anything like it from her again. It was this white hot rage, like disappointment and fury rolled into one. And the one time I tried asking her about it, she couldn't look me in the eye. It was like she knew exactly what I was thinking. I didn't care about the why or the when or the, the what, just the how. How did he leave? How could I leave? All she would ever say was that he'd abandoned us, that he destroyed our family. He spat on your grandparents' graves and burnt their legacy to the ground. I've always loved my uncle. He's the only one who told me I could be anything. And when he left, it was like this great iron gate slamming shut on my future. And now he's back, and I can't tell if my mum wants to kill him or hug him or wishes he never came back at all. And I can't help but wonder what she'd do if she really knew. If she knew I didn't want to come home either. Sorry. No, no, it's I'm, uh... okay. I'm just... That's more than you've said about your family, like, ever. I guess it builds or something. Have I ever told you how much I hate your mum? Yeah, you have. Well, I'll tell you again. I wish I could... Talk some sense into her? Shake her really hard? I was thinking something a bit more violent, but sure. I love you for that. It must be nice to have your uncle back in town, though. Yeah, I guess. He's... I want to say he's different, but maybe it's just me who's changed. I think he might be disappointed in me. Disappointed? Why? Because I didn't become anything I wanted. I'm still following the garden path. Well, what would you do if you could do anything? Huh? Tell me about the future. Your future in your ideal world. What's the point, Nix? The future's been written since before I was born. I graduate from university and go work for my mum. There isn't any other path for me. Humor me. Imagine. Tell me about the future. I graduate from university. Bella. I graduate from university and go to Oxford for my masters. I've never left London for longer than three days in my life and it'd be nice to study somewhere new. So I study there and I go further for my PhD. Edinburgh maybe, or maybe I even leave the UK. I study uh, stories, how they work, how they change. I discover a new Sappho or um, write a best-selling book of essays. I... I never set foot in London again. I go somewhere no one knows my name, where no one can find me. A house in the woods where I make my own bread and I talk to the birds at my window and the mist rises to greet me each morning. That sounds nice. What about you? Ah. Uh. 
you know my life plan hasn't changed since we were 12. Graduate from uni, go to drama school. 15 years from now, I'll be the youngest ever artistic director of the globe. There are steps in between. I won't bore you with the details. But I'm going to make it. And maybe sometimes, between all the chaos, I book a ticket to the distant corner of the world where no one knows to follow. And I visit a place where the trees go thick and dark and the mists rise to sow in the mornings. That sounds nice. It does, doesn't it? Of course, the real question is what we'd name our cats. Because, obviously, we'll both be guessing them. Mm, I'd need a very lazy cat. One that won't kill all the bird friends I'll be making. Obviously, it has to be a black cat to achieve your final form of witch in the woods. Obviously. I'd name it something like Hector or Penthesilia. Sounds nerdy. Says the person who named themselves after a Greek goddess. I did not name myself after a Greek goddess, thank you very much. I named myself Nix because it sounds cool, and so I could answer the phone with, Hi, this is Mix Nix. You're terrible. Penthesilia was an Amazonian warrior who died in the Battle of Troy. Okay, well, Hector was the hero of Troy in the Iliad. You have to have heard of him. It might ring a bell. Well, what would you name your cat? Horatio. I've had it picked out for years. Mm, not nerdy at all. Everyone knows Hamlet. Whereas the Iliad is an incredibly obscure text that hasn't seen the light of day in hundreds of years. I mean... Do you know how many classical references there are in Shakespeare? In Hamlet alone? Nope. Sorry. I don't see them. You're the absolute worst. Me? I'm quickly becoming my friend's personal performing circus. And you know what? I'm not mad about it. We can do something else if you'd prefer. No, I love this. It's nice. So, you perform for someone else other than me, huh? Just Lola. Replacing your audience so easily. No, it, it wasn't... <laughs> Nix, I'm, I'm teasing. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you ready? Always. Maybe be careful with this one, though. That paper looks pretty old. It's fine. Just a bit yellow. The author probably just spilled some tea on it or something. Okay. Sure. The speaker's name is Noah Markham, an experienced sailor. Is that code for pirates? No, at least I don't think so. Shame. I just rewatched Treasure Planet, so I'm in the mood. If you believe he's a pirate, then he's a pirate. Death of the author! It's your narrative now! Uh, I don't think that's how it works. That's literally how it works, Miss Literature Student. Maybe. Okay. Noah Markham, experienced sailor and secret pirate. Are you ready? Always. I do not have much time to tell my story, but I must tell it, and you must listen. My days have been numbered, though I did not know it since that fateful day a year ago when I fell into the sea. 
when I lost the book. I'm a seafarer by trade, cargo mostly. My husband likes to say I'm more married to the sea than to him. There is certainly more paperwork tying us together, but he is just as, if not more, married to his frankly obscenely large herb garden, so... My husband is the one who suggested I seek you out. When I told him the sea was coming to collect. He's also the one who gave me the book. It was a beautiful book. A copy of Mr. Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, handbound in green cloth and embossed with gold. He found it quite by chance one day at the market, the day before my first voyage as a captain. He knew that fate desired me to have it. I talk so much about the wonder of the sea, he says, that I should have been a romantic. But my talents have never lain in the world of poetry. I simply observe the world and feel too much. It is not that the sea is wonderful. Wonder is not the right word at all. I would describe it instead as awful in both senses of the word. On the one hand, days at sea can be a miserable thing. The choke of salt on the air, the thickness of mist, never quite getting dry or warm. The rocking of the world that reminds one how fragile every foundation truly is, always within reach of the surf, the depths, the storm. The muffled echo of hollow ship halls, the creaking that could be just metal and wood resettling, or the last sound you will ever hear. The loneliness, even with the other men walking through the ship. Comfort is a fever dream. But there is that other, older meaning of the word too. Awful, to be full of awe. A passion so overwhelming you cannot be sure if what you are feeling is elation or terror. It is in the endless stretch of the horizon, cut off by nothing except the earth falling away from itself. The sky, so wide and bright, unpolluted by false light. The depths below, completely unknown and unknowable, and all of it watching, waiting. The sea is a hungry thing. One may call the sea alive, but very few would understand the truth of it. The average man might look at the sea, see its rolling motion, see the arc of waves and the calm of glassy, dull afternoons, and call the waters changeable. They may joke about the old man of the waves. A superstitious man may even, behind closed doors, mutter about the old gods. Poseidon and Neptune for the Greeks and Romans, Ager for the Norse. A man who has lived his days upon the sea knows the old man of the sea like a father. He may be that which rears you, which holds you up in the world. He may be the place you gain your living, the thing which gives you home and shelter, food on your plate and gold in your pocket. But he is not a kind man, and he is not gentle. 
You may pray to the wind for guidance, to the white sea spray for mercy, but he has no obligation to hear you. If you have angered him or stolen more than your due, or perhaps even simply if he feels like it, you are lost. He may take all you have, your ship, your gold, your food. He may even take your life. But it is owed to him. And you must be grateful he waited this long to take it at all. I am not a grateful son. I believed myself above his judgment, for I had my talisman and it kept me safe at sea. The book tucked always in my breast pocket. My husband believed it held the spirit of the sea, that it would keep me safe. He does not believe in luck as I do, but he believes in magic. Perhaps they are similar entities, perhaps even the same, simply viewed from different angles. I carried my talisman across oceans, and in all that time, I was safe. We saw our fair share of storms, but never lost any men or cargo, never suffered damages or were delayed in our journeys. I began foolishly to believe that we were lucky. Always at the back of my mind, my favourite passage. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. The storm that changed everything came on suddenly. One moment the breeze was high, the sun bright and hot on our backs. I was reading to the men from the rhyme, as I liked to do, that they grumbled about my pretensions. They humoured me, for we were a lucky crew and I their lucky captain. I had not made it through more than a handful of verses before the weather turned. The wind snatched my book, my beautiful book, right from my hands and cast it into the waves. I watched the pages scatter and vanish in an instant. We lost five men to that storm. Our ropes snapped, our sails tore. By the time we limped into the port at London, we were two weeks late, exhausted and starving. I knew something was wrong the moment I stepped onto land. I felt the weight of something settling upon my shoulders. The longer I stayed away from the water, the heavier it felt, until the simple act of rising from bed each morning was a monument. Then the dreams began and did not leave. It has been a year now, split between land and sea, and always the dreams follow. On land, I dream of the sea. I am lost, far out among the waves. 
the salt bites into my skin. With every wave that looms higher over me, I am certain it is the last time I will see the sky, the last time my lungs will taste air. I search, desperate for sure, but the mists hover heavy over the water and I cannot see a thing. I could be ten yards from shore or ten miles. Sometimes the sea is forgiving. My feet touch suddenly against solid ground, sand, the ocean floor risen up to support me. For a minute the world is stable. I can catch my breath, rest my aching limbs. That single moment makes every other all the worse. Every time I allow myself hope that this time the ground will remain beneath my feet, that I will stand and the mist will part and there will be the shoreline. My husband will be stood there, so close I need only reach out to take his hand. His arms will be warm, stronger than the sea. He will take me home and make tea for us to share out of delicate china cups that would not survive a second in the water. And when we fall asleep together, I will dream of absolutely nothing. But always, the sand slips away, scattered by the currents, and I am plunged into salt. The waves return with the vengeance of a god, crashing hard against my back, tugging me under. I wake from these dreams, safe. I wake under hand-stitched blankets, wrapped in his arms. There was no salt on my tongue, no mist in the air. I can imagine for just a moment, that the sea does not live in my heart, in my blood, that I will not leave this warmth and safety for a far less forgiving lover. But the sea calls, and I cannot resist. It is the weight on my shoulders, the ache in my chest for something more. Once one has glimpsed the sublime, it is impossible not to hunger for it, no matter the danger. At sea, the dreams change. I am not struggling against the waves. I have already succumbed to them, given my life to their restless hands. No, at sea, I dream I am falling, sinking down, down, Far from the sky, from land, from that soft bed, those warm arms. It is peaceful beneath the water. And perhaps that is worse than the raging storm above. I'm left only with my thoughts, with the heavy silence that is anything but quiet. It is the sound of something, something huge, waiting watching. I feel as if the dark is in fact a gaping mouth. Just beyond my sight is the staring eye of some god so long forgotten we would call it a monster or devil. I exist not because it lets me, but because I am too beneath its care. 
I am right where I belong. No human has ever seen the bottom of the ocean at its deepest. The pressure down there would kill any man before he got close. This hasn't stopped us from imagining. There is the mythical sunken city of Atlantis. There are monster stories, grotesques of what might roam those lightless fields. I have seen no ruined city beneath the waves. Perhaps it is hidden from me. Perhaps it is out there, somewhere, in the dark. There are certainly creatures, though I cannot speak to their appearances, grotesque or otherwise. I know them only in shadows, in glints, in the shift of movement in the corner of my eye, in the curl of scale and skin brushing past my limbs too fast or too slow. The bottom of the ocean is a graveyard, for as far as the eye can see, which is not very far, far further, I am sure of it, the water is cold and heavy and vast. It tastes of death. There is no sound, entangled among the weeds of bones, picked clean or gently rotting, eddying their essence into the waves. Creatures who lived their entire lives in reach of the sun, whales and sharks and fish so large they might dwarf the ships that try to hook them. As they die, they sink and come to rest here, where they may feed a whole new world. And nestled among the bones, the page of a book. Several tucked into ribs, into jaws, the ink unrun, the paper unsodden, somehow alive, unchanged in the valley of death. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. I've drifted in this never world below the waves many times now. In each, I feel the sea calling to my lungs. I feel the weight of that unseen eye. I may not know what it wants with me. Why my lucky talisman, the remains of my heart, lies unruined when the sea is so certainly desperate to steal him, to steal everything from me. But I'm not naive enough to think that I am simply dreaming. I know what lurks beneath the world. I know that somehow I have irked something too old to speak. I know that the next time I step upon the waves, I will not return. That might be my favourite so far. Oh? I'm literally learning about the rhyme of the ancient mariner and the sublime in one of my English classes right now. It's cool to see it, like, in the wild. I thought you were going to say that my performance was particularly dazzling. Your performance is always dazzling. Why, thank you. What's the rhyme actually about? 
Uh, a guy who gets stranded at sea with his crew because he shot a bird? Everyone else dies but him, so he's cursed to tell his story to anyone he can. Forever? Yikes. Doesn't seem particularly lucky. Superstition is weird that way. There's not so much logic to it as feeling. Like, don't walk under ladders? That just seems like common sense. And yet, you walk under every ladder you see. And pet every black cat you come across. So did you! Sure, Nixie. <sighs> Want to go feed the ducks? Uh, yeah. I'd like that. Don't forget to turn the recording off this time. I know, I know. I'm not that forgetful, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of arguing with that. Thank you for listening to The Attic Monologues. Today's episode was written and produced by Morgan Greensmith. It was directed and script edited by L.M. Cluhessi. The sound design was by Anna Leclerc, and the theme tune was composed by Wilkie Morrison. In this episode, you heard the voices of... Atlas Morgan as Nix Ryland. Anne Lorian as Bella Crow. The logo was designed by Ailey Lang. The social media is run by Soren Briarwood. Find us on Twitter at Attic Monologues, and on Tumblr, Instagram, and Facebook at The Attic Monologues. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sending us some love through our Ko-fi. You can find us at www.co-fi.com slash theatticmonologues. Or maybe just leave a rating and review. Or you could even tell a friend you think might enjoy oblivious romantics, creeping fantasy elements and existential crises to listen. Any comments or questions, shoot us a message over our socials or email us at theatticmonologues at gmail.com. Again, from all of our team, thank you so much for listening. Episode 8, Once More Under the Breach, will be out on Wednesday 27th of October. See you then! You've reached Mix Nix. I'm probably booting through my bag trying to find my phone right now, and I'll answer in three... Two. One. In which case I'm probably asleep. Or my phone is under my laundry. Or dead. That's a very real possibility. Though whether I'm talking about me or my phone is up for debate. You should probably just text me. It's easier. Nix, learn to pick up your phone, please. What if I was having a crisis? Anyway, I'm just calling to check that you're still up for going to Seth's birthday party, despite your ever so many deadlines and adult responsibilities. Not that it is up for debate, but can I come over beforehand to get ready? It'll be so much more fun and we can add the last touches to his birthday present before we go. I hope you and Bella are planning to do a joint costume like I suggested. I doubt you will because you refuse to let me have fun, but a girl can dream. Anyway, I'll be over at five so we can leave at seven and be there by eight. And yes, I will text you all of this information too so that you can actually receive it. But voicemail was invented for a reason and I'm going to use it. Love you both. Hello there, citizen. You've lived in Guilt City for a while now. Maybe you've wondered 
when you wake in the morning and retrieve the letters tucked neatly into your postbox, just where your mail comes from. It comes from the night post, of course. Those faithful couriers deliver it while you're sleeping. All the better that they stay out of sight and keep the unseemly strangeness that follows them out of our city in the skelter where it belongs. Ahem. If, for some reason, you'd like to know more about Guilt City's conscripted couriers and the burden that chose them, their secret hopes and fears, the ancient, untamed threats that hound them on their nocturnal journeys, you have only to listen. The Night Post is a supernatural audio drama by an all-LGBT teen, delivered weekly, in dead of night, to wherever you listen to podcasts. Find answers at nightpostpod.com.